0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women Join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarro, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on the secret power of embracing our motions at work. Our phones are open at 844-WHARTON, that's 844-942-7866, and we'd love to hear your questions and your stories. Are you up in the middle of the night stewing over yesterday's meeting? Confused as to why a simple email you sent your colleague has basically resulted in all-out war? Or are you an introverted working mom who can't understand why you have to give up your Friday night to go to the all-team baseball game? My guest today will help us understand the deeper issues behind all of these common experiences and how we can learn to navigate them to be both happier and more productive at work. Once again, our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Liz Fosline is today's guest. She's the co-author and inspired illustrator of No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotion at Work. It is a wickedly funny but deeply insightful guide to unrepressing your emotions at work and finding constructive channels, even for things like jealousy and anxiety, that enable you to bring your best self to work. Liz is responsible for contact content at Humu, a machine learning company founded by Laszlo Block that uses nudges to make work better. Prior to joining Humu, Liz designed and led workshops for executives at Google, Facebook, and Nike on how to create inclusive cultures. Her writing and data visualization projects have appeared in CNN, The Economist, The Financial Times, and NPR. Plus, she's created a series of illustrations so witty and illuminating, I can't stop sending them to all of my friends. So with that, I'd like to say, Liz, welcome to Women at Work. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. We're really delighted to have you today. Um, one of the things that's so interesting, there's a lot that's interesting to me about this book that I want to share, but I want to start with getting past this fundamental stigma around being emotional at work, particularly for women. I think a lot of us have been trained to see it as a weakness and something to avoid. Um, I think we're looking at it differently if we listen to what you say.
0: Yeah. So it is. I think it's traditionally been very stigmatized to have emotion in the workplace, And I certainly, earlier in my career, operated under this idea that to be professional is not to feel. It's to be only rational. And yet, if you look through the academic and scientific literature, it is biologically impossible not to feel feelings. Right. We wouldn't be alive. Exactly. You cannot check your feelings at any door. We've evolved to have
1: emotion. So is it that we've got to deal with emotion, or could it actually be, rather than a weakness, a form of power to understand and work with them?
0: Definitely. It is important to figure out which emotions are noise and which are useful. But if you can do that and figure out this is a strong data point, it's absolutely a superpower to be able to listen to your
1: feelings. So that particular idea that it's a data point. So I think that means we should be looking at our emotions as information, not just a problem.
0: Exactly. And so in the book, we really advise people always see this as another data point as opposed to, you know, it's not that you feel something, immediately act on it. It's hold it up to the light, examine what it's telling you, and then see how that figures into everything else that you know.
1: So in a way, the, not to give them a negative bent, but emotions are a symptom. They're not the disease. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So how do we start to learn to, how to understand them? Because I think a lot of us just, I mean, I even had it today. You know, I think I'm in my deep professional groove, and then all of a sudden it's like an emotion sneaks up on me like a mouse crawls out of a a hole sometimes. (laughs)
0: Yes, exactly. Um, The best place to start Is really just to start listing everything you're feeling and I think that's when you can practice something called emotional granularity and that's the ability to get really specific about what you're feeling so not I'm feeling bad but I'm feeling frustrated I'm feeling skeptical I'm feeling anxious and so step one is always just kind of sit there internally check through all your feelings and then that's when you can actually start to figure out, well, where might this be coming from? And is one just a symptom of like traffic and traffic was horrible, so I'm upset, <laughs> right. which doesn't right. have anything to do with my coworker? Or is it that I'm just unmotivated at work or I don't feel there's upward mobility in my job? Um, those are, you know, stronger signals. So number one, just kind of listen to what your feelings are telling you. Don't act, just observe.
1: Okay. So I want to talk about kind of getting smarter about our emotions for a minute and a term that um, we hear a lot called emotional intelligence. Is that at the heart of what you're talking about? Or are there three different aspects of what you're talking about that you noted in the back of the book?
0: Yeah. So it all speaks to emotional intelligence. um, But we look at three steps. And the first is acknowledging. And again, that's just internal reflection, admitting that you have feelings, seeing what they are. And then it is understanding. So that's really looking at what is the need driving each emotion? If you're anxious, why are you anxious? Is it because you're worried about a deadline? And then the very last step is expression. And that's Mm. really where a lot of emotional intelligence comes in. And that can be, for many people, the trickiest, which is you have this feeling, you know what's behind it. Now, how do you actually go into the workplace and communicate that effectively?
1: And it's funny because as you say that, it makes perfect sense. But trying to sort that out, it's a skill that you develop. This doesn't happen overnight.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I Before I started doing all this research, I think I was not quite as emotionally intelligent as I would have liked to have been. So um, I think the book will help, but then also just practicing and, and listing your feelings starting to identify the needs behind them, and then kind of having the bravery to, in some circumstances, have a difficult conversation, speak about your emotions without getting emotional, and see where that takes you.
1: You know, I think bravery is actually a really important part of this because, you know, there's this stigma about being emotional at work. Why? I think we're afraid of our emotions, and it takes a certain amount of courage to face them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back, like, centuries when this idea was that rationality is on one end of the spectrum and emotions are on the other end. And that's actually false. Um, Many of your emotions are completely rational. Uh, If you are on the Sahara and a lion is running towards you and you're afraid, that's very rational. Yeah, I'd call that an appropriate uh, response. Exactly. Um, But I think it's been really ingrained in us that this dichotomy exists. And then I think it also goes back to, you know, the modern sort of knowledge worker. That was for a long time, the last 50 years, the domain of men. And so masculinity is very wrapped up in this idea that you're not emotional, or at least you only display certain emotions. Mm -hmm. Anger is okay, but not anxiety or fear or vulnerability. And so I think we're still existing in that idea where you come in and you should be sort of the prototypical buttoned-up businessman.
1: Because there was a beautiful quote in the book um, referring to the idea that it's a workplace that was created, and, and I don't say this disparagingly, this is just the truth, it was a workplace created by men so that men could thrive within that environment. And their, and so their strengths and tendencies and social norms are different than women's, and, and it creates a different dynamic than when you have a, a more diverse workplace.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, men are socialized to boys will be boys, to be rough and aggressive. Um, And then women, on the other hand, are socialized like sugar and spice and everything nice. And so that (laughs) does create, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think we still people still bandy these about. And so that definitely creates different expectations once we turn into adults and step into the workplace about how we should be behaving.
1: And so when we think about emotions in the workplace – Can we carve them up and think about them as there's our own emotions and then how we understand other people's emotions?
0: Yeah. um, I mean, a big part of emotional intelligence is having empathy and kind of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and think through what their emotions might be. But one of the things we caution very strongly against in the book is not to make assumptions about other people's emotions. Mm. Um, I think so much misunderstanding comes about when we have a really strong reaction based on an assumption about the other person that we never bother to fact check.
1: I know. I loved. there was a section where you were talking about it, that if we're prompted to take action and we don't have all the facts, that's actually a sign that we should actually stop right there.
0: Exactly. There's this classic advice that says never go to bed angry, and I want to tell everyone, go to bed angry. It's okay. Sometimes you just need to take a break. You need to let yourself cool down. Sometimes you're just hungry or you haven't slept enough. So, Always take a break. If you think you have all the answers, you're not ready to enter into a real discussion.
1: So when you say, you know, if you think you have all the answers, you're not ready to enter, and it reminds me something of something that Cade um, Massey talks about of holding your ideas loosely. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what that means and how that relates to it?
0: Yeah. So I'll actually give a personal story that I think illustrates this really nicely. A few years ago, at a job, we hired this new employee. And I realized pretty quickly that when I would ask him a question, his answers, he would start speaking very slowly and over enunciate each word. And I was so angry. (laughs) I was just like (laughs) so frustrated for weeks because I thought that he thought I was unintelligent. And so a few weeks later, we went out to dinner with the team. He and I were having a good conversation. And so without malice, I just said, hey, do you realize that when I ask you questions, you slow down a lot as you reply? And he looked at me immediately and said, I know it's something I'm working on, but I'm just really afraid that I'm going to look stupid in front of you. So I'm slow because I'm choosing my words really carefully.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. And so I had been really seething. And it was completely the wrong understanding of the situation. And so allowing space to be curious about his perspective, to not immediately jump to how could you do this to me? You must think I'm an idiot. Um, But being willing to listen to the other person's perspective. And that's back to Cade Massey's point, holding your ideas loosely until you've really explored whether or not they're true is so crucial to great communication, especially at work.
1: Yeah. And I love this particular example because it wasn't just that you had different points of view. It's that they were ironically exact opposites.
0: Exactly, And I was so <laughs> sure that I was right. And I think that's something also to caution against is sometimes when we have these very strong feelings that are reactions, they feel true but they aren't necessarily true. In the books we say your feelings aren't facts even if they feel like a fact.
1: Well, what is a fact is that this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Liz Fosline who is the co-author and brilliant illustrator of a book called No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotion at Work. The phone lines are open at 844 Wharton. That's 844-942-7866. And have you jumped to a conclusion about a co-worker's attitudes or intentions? What did you you do. Call us and tell us about it or get some good advice from Liz. Once again, our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Liz, one of the things about this that is so impressive, it's not just the principle that's so important here of, you know, you got to listen and bring some curiosity to bear. Why is he behaving this way? But you seem to have had, or at least in the way you told the story just now, a comfortable way to open the conversation. Yeah, How did you one, learn to do that?
0: <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of mistakes along the way uh, were made, but um, a lot of research, too. So a lot of research went into this book. We interviewed about 50 Fortune 500 executives and then also looked at the academic literature. And to come back to your question, I think sort of parsing through all of that, one of the simplest pieces of advice I can give to approaching a conversation with curiosity and, again, Trying not to create a victim and a perpetrator is to simply say, "When you do X, I feel Y." So in that case, I might have said, "When you answer slowly, it makes me feel um, unsure of myself." And and that's all I'm saying is expressing how I'm feeling, and it still leaves space open for the other person to say, "Oh, actually, your assumption was incorrect. Here's my perspective," or at the very least, just flags for them. That they're doing something that maybe doesn't make you feel so great, so then they can correct their behavior. Is
1: that what's called eye messaging?
0: You can't do it over eye messaging,
1: but I think it's No, no, no. Same, I don't mean iMessaging do digitally. I'll, I'll share a story with you. I, had, um, I was a coach for Girls on the Run, and they mm. provide these wonderful guidebooks to teach the girls ways of navigating conflict. And they had a session that they called eye messaging, which I think was just that idea. So rather than saying, huh. you're bad, it says, Liz, when you do X, I feel Y so exactly i'm messaging how how i feel and that so it's like about my craziness not yours yeah i hadn't heard of that but i will use that from now on that's great <laughs> and i'm sure if girls on the run anybody's out there listening and you know the source of it please share but it was amazing to see that it, the power that it gave even 10 and 11 year old girls to start to talk to each other about how they were affecting each other's feelings
0: yeah i love that i mean another great thing about that is is so often i think When you present something, people start to pick out, pick apart your reasoning, and then the argument or the discussion, ideally it's a discussion, starts to devolve. But if you simply say, this happened, and here's how I feel about it, there's not really much someone can do to pick that apart. It's simply how you feel.
1: I also think when people do that, when they're picking stuff apart and jumping in, it's almost like they're listening to figure out when they can jump in and fight back Mm -hmm. instead of listening to hear. Yes.
0: Exactly, it's one of my biggest conversational pet peeves when people do that.
1: (laughs) So, when when that happens, um, is there a way? A, let's talk about ourselves, and let's talk about how we deal with other people when they do that. How do we learn to be better listeners?
0: Yeah, I think one great way is just to start asking people questions and make a hard and fast rule for yourself that you cannot turn the conversation back to your experiences or your feelings. So really trying to get curious, ask follow-up questions about the other person. There's also research that shows that we are actually better able to process and manage our own emotions when we listen to other people process and manage theirs. So by listening, you're also going to be learning and improving your own skill set. Um, And then in a group setting, I think one thing that's so crucial is if you see someone else getting interrupted in a meeting or over lunch, it's a really wonderful thing to turn to that person and say, the person who was interrupted and say, hey, I noticed you were trying to say something. Do you want to finish your thought? And it's also a gentle way of flagging, it's not okay to interrupt. Um, and I think the person that did the interrupting will notice and and hopefully change their behavior in the future.
1: And that has power, I think, in two different situations. One is when you have somebody who's just doing that kind of aggressive interrupting and talking and drowning somebody out, but also in the gender politics of the conference room. Um, it's amplification.
0: Yes, exactly, which I love. Um, this is a strategy used by staffers under the Obama administration, uh, and they noticed that men were taking credit for their ideas or women weren't being called on enough. And so when one woman would state an idea, the next woman would say, thank you, and address that person by name and say, that's a great idea, to really enforce this came from a woman, this is who it came from, there's no questioning behind that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And when you're the one who needs to calm down, it's funny, as you're describing this, it's something that my teenager taught me, mostly because she would start to talk and I would want to give her advice and Mm -hmm. make sure I'm like teaching her right from wrong. And and I know my job is to listen, but I so wanted to try and help her fix it. And she's like, Mom, I just need to get this out. And then I took a deep breath because I realized the thing I needed to do was hold still. And then as I held still it got easier to hold still. Mm. And she seemed to relax because I think she felt like I was really paying attention.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think too often we cut people off because we think we have the answer and then we might not have full information. So our advice isn't actually the best advice. Um, I actually have a friend who is, I would say, extremely emotionally <laughs> intelligent. And I came to him once and I was frustrated about a work problem. And before I could speak, he said to me, he was like, Stop, I want to know something. Do you want me to be A.? your ally? Do you want me to be, challenge you? Or do you want me to see, just listen and tell you it's going to be okay? <laughs> that was so
1: lovely. Yeah, that is um, a testimony I, to his emotional yeah. intelligence. Yeah. And also a reminder that sometimes, both for us when we're trying to figure out how do we cope with the feeling, um, for us to think about, are we looking for a solution? Or do we mm. need a place to explore it and find language for it?
0: Exactly, and that's actually another thing to bring up, too. We mentioned this in the book. Um, When you're upset, it feels really good to run to the person that's going to be your ally. And so for many people, this is your best friend, your partner. For me, it's my mom. Anything I say, she'll be like, of course, sweetie, you're right, of course. But it's crucial to also go to your challenge network, and these are the people that aren't going to take everything you say as given, and might actually say, "Hey, have you looked at it from this perspective? Have you thought that this is the other what the other person might have been thinking?" Um, so, if you only go to the support system, you actually sabotage your ability to learn and grow from a situation.
1: So, one of the things that you wrote about in the book, which you, and you, and I have to say, the book takes these complex. Um, stirring issues and makes them really understandable, and you can really relate to them. And one of them is a whole section on psychological safety and trust. How much? How do we create that two-way street of trust? So if we need to go vent, and but we need to hear the truth, how can we approach somebody so they know we're really ready to hear it? And how can we deliver the truth so that somebody else can hear what we're saying?
0: Yeah. So to create trust, I mean, one of the best things to do is to positively reinforce the behavior that you're trying to create. And so, for example, if you want to create a culture in which people feel psychologically safe and they feel like they can flag problems, they can raise issues, they can make mistakes without any reprisal or with, you know, they're still safe if they do that. Um, the first thing you do is if someone comes to you and points something out or gives you critical feedback that's really useful to say, hey, thank you, it's really important at work that we're able to tell these things to each other. So just something that small can have a really big difference on whether that person feels comfortable coming to you again. Um, And then giving sort of critical feedback or, or giving talking to people about hard things. In the book we give the advice really important to be specific and so I think that builds trust because if you're specific you're also probably giving actionable feedback so if I say your email missed the mark or your comments weren't that great you're going to leave that with no idea how to improve and you might just sit there and sort of puzzle over this which turns into rumination and suddenly you are very anxious and insecure as opposed to if I say hey that email you sent sentence two redundant and needs to be deleted you're going to walk away from that, delete sentence two, and feel good about yourself, and feel like you learned something and improved. So, number one, be specific when giving critical feedback.
1: That's huge because I think it also protects us from a tendency that many people have, which is "I am work, work is me." And so, if my mm-hmm. work sucks, I suck, and it, it's and it becomes this this um, negative spiral. And so, by saying, "Here's the thing that needs to improve," um. And this is how you do it. And can I support you that bridge? Can I support you on the other side? Um, You're keeping somebody in a place where it's about the specific thing you're making it and you're making it easy to improve in a way that they want to.
0: Exactly. And that the making it about bridging the gap. That's something uh, I actually learned from Cade Massey at Wharton, which is really emphasizing you are giving this person critical feedback because you believe that they can get to a better place and you want to help them get there. Um, so crucial in making someone see you as a mentor as opposed to someone who's just like, needlessly attacking or bringing them. And I have down.
1: to tell you, I actually work for Kate, so he does that with me, and it's <laughs> oh, <that's> enormously <laughs> helpful. By the way, we have a call. He son is calling from San Francisco. He son, thanks so much for listening to Women at Work and calling in. What's on your mind today?
0: Um, thank you. So uh, I was listening to earlier in the program, and we talked a little bit about better listening. And I have a, a coworker who is really great in a lot of ways, but is very long-winded. And I find that this person often loses their audience, including me, because of how long <laughs> it takes for them to express uh, their opinion. So I would love some advice or tips around how to work better with this person and any any advice that you have.
1: So, Liz, what do you think?
0: Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it depends on how close you are. And thanks for the question, for calling. Um, A lot of it depends on how close you are with the person. So if you feel like it's something you can discuss, you, again, might give them some friendly feedback of, hey, you know, I think that it would be more effective for you if you sort of thought through everything you wanted to say and then came to people with the most salient points and then stopped and, and sort of sought feedback on what you've said already. Um another great thing that teams can do, so in that case, the onus is sort of on his son to have this conversation, but a great thing that managers can do at the outset of a project or once a team starts getting together is to have everyone fill out a how to work with me guide. And so in that, you can say, it's really important to me. Like I like really short conversations or I like, I don't want to read through a long email. And so just condense things, short agendas. That's the most effective way to work with me. And so if someone sees that, it might put a little seed in their brain that, um, they might want to be a little more pithy.
1: Those are two great pieces of advice. Heason, is that helpful?
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think also, um, the, the reminder to share the feedback, because you had mentioned it right before, that it it's the, the feedback comes from caring and from wanting to make the person better, um, and yeah, I think that, that helps to take some of the central awkwardness of giving direct, maybe constructive or critical feedback, especially to a peer.
1: Absolutely. Well, Heeson, thanks so much for calling in. And our phones are still open. If you want to join in the fun, we're at 844 Wharton. That's 844-942-7866. So, Liz, I have a related question for you before we take a break. Um, One of the things that I've had colleagues do with me, not many, but when they do, it's awesome, Um, I find it very helpful, is to say, you know, here's a thing that I've noticed that you do. Can I help you figure out how to do it better? Is that a thing that you'd recommend that we do? Is it going to um take too much of us our time or is it a way to be generous and also provide the criticism and make it part of that bridge of improving?
0: I really love that. Um I think also, you know, Adam Grant at Wharton, he has, he's very big on sort of givers and takers mm-hmm. and being generous with your time and generous with helping someone else. And, again, the way that you phrased it goes back to the earlier points I think we both made about really positioning it as bridging the gap and saying, I'm here for you, I'm your friend, um, let's work on this together. The also working on it together, I love that's so constructive and collaborative um, my friend or my old boss, he had this saying where he said, a friend will tell you you have spinach in your teeth and a non-friend will just let you walk around the rest of the day with spinach in your teeth because they don't want to go through that small, uncomfortable moment. And so, again, <laughs> as much as possible saying, like, I'm here. I want the best for you. Let's do this together. Right. I and, I,
1: that. and I think your very closest friends will hold up the mirror and help you get the spinach out. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> that's true friendship. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you know, part of what this goes into and I hope we we'll get to, we can talk about this in the next half hour is also how these relationships form so that you can um, have this kind of relationship? And what are the little and big things that we can do to knit people closer together? So before we start diving into the big list of questions that I have for you, talk to me a little bit about your partnership with Molly, a little bit about who she is and how you two learn to work together.
0: Yeah. So Molly and I became friends when I moved to New York and I was living in San Francisco and was had never really been to New York and was afraid of all the abuse I assumed New Yorkers <laughs> were going to heap on me. So I sent a email to all my friends frantically asking for them to make me friends in New York. And Molly was my first platonic friend date. Um, we're both introverts. We both love taking on side projects. So we had this kind of instant click. And then we're writing articles together and eventually got an agent. And then this book kind of made sense. We were really nervous because we were such good friends. And I think we both at the outset of writing this book were worried that taking on a professional project together might ruin our friendship. Um, And in fact, we're actually much closer. And so one of the things uh, that I will give, I think this is something that maybe people can also do at home if they're working with a partner or thinking about embarking on a project with someone else is I studied economics, so I love spreadsheets. So we created the spreadsheet that let us explicitly like track and compare our feelings. So we had a list of 10 statements, and those included, I feel good about the direction of the book, but also I feel good about my contribution, and I feel good about the other person's contribution. And every other week, we would each fill in how we were feeling on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being the highest. But then, for example, I would also fill in how I thought Molly felt. And then we would switch and see where the Uh gaps were. And so I remember there was one week when I thought Molly felt a nine of the direction of the book. And when we switched, she actually felt a four. And so it was really clear, like that's a big difference, that there was something there that I was missing that she was feeling pretty strongly about and that we needed to talk about it. And I think sort of the bigger lesson in that is just really in a partnership, it's so crucial to flush out problems before they become these big issues that are so emotional because we've never talked about them, because our feelings have just festered for so long.
1: There was a, a a great illustration that you did in the book that was about your different communication styles. Could you talk a little bit about that and why it was so important to sort those out?
0: Yeah, so uh, at a very basic level, I'm much more visual, and then Molly is much more verbal. And how that translates into writing is... That we co-authored the book, and so uh, we figured out pretty early on that Molly is much better at just filling a page with text. Like she will find interesting re- work and and write a lot, and like pull stuff from everywhere. And then my strength is coming in and being like the little lawnmower (laughs) that like
1: edits it. And it's like,
0: what are we really trying to say here? What's like the central thesis of the book? And what are the bullet points? Um, And initially that caused some friction because I don't think we saw it as a really nice partnership. We both wanted to own every step of the process. And so... I think Molly would be really frustrated at me when it took me longer to do things. And I would be frustrated at her when I was like, you're going too fast. There's too many words. Um, And then we had a conversation about it. And in that actually realized that it's a pretty great combo. Um, Mm -hmm. I think again, to to tie that back with a bigger lesson for teamwork is really know your strengths and try and optimize for those. Um, You know, I think So often we think we have to be generalists and we have to be good at everything, but the point of having a team is that you have people that bring really different skill sets, and so know what your skills are, and then be comfortable letting someone else kind of step to the front when it's their expertise or their domain of expertise.
1: It's also as if you guys were working on this on the macro and micro level, because while you're writing a book for all of us about how to navigate this stuff, you guys are figuring it out yourselves.
0: (laughs) It was such a meta process.
1: (laughs) Um, yes. but it also sounds like you mentioned something earlier, which I think Adam talks about as your personal user's manual, that you were finding ways to learn, figure out how each other works. So, and in the book, there's a great section about how to, about what this is and how you work it with another person. Can you explain it a little bit?
0: Yeah. So in the book, uh, we call these user manuals and these are again, a few questions that everyone should answer, whether you're a team of two or a team of 10, um, at the outset of a project, and they are just intended to smooth communication from that moment on. Uh, As a side note, we get a lot of questions about, do you like Myers-Briggs? Do you like the disk assessment, these different personality Mm -hmm. tests? And we're pretty agnostic. We just think anything is a great starting point for talking about different work styles. Um, But, for example, some of the questions that we suggest for these user manuals are, you know, what's something that people often misunderstand about you? Um, What are things that you value in the people you work with? Like, to your point, what's the best way to communicate with you? Do you like email? Do you like in-person conversations? There's often generational differences between those two, um, so it's a nice way of fleshing that out. What hours do you want to work together? These are all things that so many teams don't talk about, but if we know each other's preferences, then we're better able to work together without accidentally bulldozing over each other's feelings.
1: It's such a good point, and it's funny because we don't think to talk about those kinds of tactical processes together. And too many people will say, you know, what's your Myers-Briggs score? And I agree with you that, you know, assess, some assessments are stronger than others. Um, with some, it depends on how they're administered. So the idea that you're going to compare your assessment results w- just like hi. I'm of this and I'm of this. <laughs> That's not going to be as fruitful as actually talking about the tactical things that are about how you work together because that will also bring out different parts of you, right? You're each yeah, going to blossom exactly. in different ways together.
0: Yeah, and I think to me this really rings a bell for me in terms of conversations around introverts and extroverts. Mhm. That that's really a spectrum. So it's not that some people want to like hide in caves all day and some people <laughs> just are constantly on the go. Most people fall somewhere in between that. And so again, it speaks to just really understanding where does someone fall on that? Um, do they want to have meetings scheduled? Is it okay with them if you just pop in and ask them a question? For some introverts, that's very jarring. For me, personally, uh, I had a boss who would always just pop his head over and be like, hey, here's a question, and then I would have an amazing answer for him two hours later. <laughs> right,
1: because you um, needed time so, to process. Yeah,
0: I was like, can you just email me this or give me some time to think about it? Uh, so it's you know just understanding that people are different, and how can you – obviously, everyone needs to make some compromise in the workplace, but how can you, to the extent you can, kind of honor the, their working style.
1: And I, it's also easier than you think. I had read the section probably two, three days ago, and I was meeting with a student, and we were starting to embark on a project. And um, it was awesome. He came in, you know, like the, the rock star MBAs that we have here, um, with a very clear project plan and a series of things. And I realized that I wanted to talk about process and but you made me realize that if I just jumped into let's unpack this what does success look like? what are our values here? Um, I was he was gonna think I was crazy and I'd probably make him I'd probably drive him crazy. And instead, I took the advice and I tried to explain that one of my ways of working is to get anchored in that kind of big picture process first, to be a little more iterative and creative. And we'll make the project deadline, but I find them more productive and more inventive if we can work that way. And he looked at me, he's like, that's awesome. That's cool. I got it. Wow, that's amazing. That's such a wonderful anecdote. And it was all because I read that section. So thank you. Wow, I'm touched. That's we'll, great. We'll see if in 18 months we've made our deadlines. But <laughs> So one of the things I loved about your description of working with Liz is that it's also a testimony to how you can start as friends and engage in work together, which we know a lot of women like to do, um, and maintain both the friendship and move the work process along.
0: Talk yeah, to I me. Think- go, oh, ahead. go ahead. Talk- I was going to say one thing that I found was really uh, crucial was that... When we started working on the book together, we were interacting so much, and we realized about three months in that despite talking to each other every day, we had no idea what was going on in our personal lives. Oh, that's so um, funny. And so I think often we assume because we see someone all the time or because we're on the phone or email that we're close to them, but we actually aren't taking the time to step back and say, hey, how are you feeling? What's going on? Um, and so for me and Molly what we did that was really valuable is we said on our next weekly phone call 20 minutes we cannot talk about
1: work <laughs> we just have to ask like
0: what did you do what's
1: going on <laughs> and it's pri- it's funny that you needed to do cuz you were so engaged in what you were doing but it's really valuable stuff this is Women at Work, by the way, on SiriusXM's XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And I'm Laura Sarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And I'm talking with Liz Fosling, who's the co-author and illustrator of this really useful book called No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Motion at Work. If you want to give us a ring and join the conversation, you can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Liz, as you're telling that story about needing to carve out time to connect with Molly the person, not Molly your, the collaborator... It's also bringing up something else that you wrote about in the book that I think is the related inverse version of that. And that's the importance of actually learning about each other and making friends when you're strangers as the beginning of the work process. Talk to me about, A, why that's important, and B, how we go about it in ways that can feel natural.
0: Yeah. So having a personal relationship with someone before you dive into work or kind of building that as you're starting a project is so important in, again, avoiding miscommunication. So it's partly just about understanding their work preferences, but it's also about really having the faith to assume good intentions um, and seeing that they're human. And so maybe if they don't forget to email you one night or are a little late to a call that you don't immediately jump to, Oh, my coworker is so frustrating, but you're like, Hey, maybe they're having a bad day or I know this other thing that's going on in their lives. And so I'm going to cut them a little slack or have their back. Um, you know, I think it also just when it comes to negotiation, there's research that shows that just smooth uh, schmoozing a little bit <laughs> leads to better outcomes. And so I think it again, speaks to, it's so important to have that personal connection. Um, The one thing I will caution about friendships is that, as humans, we have a tendency to really like people that are similar to us. And so it is important to realize that for every close friendship, there's usually somebody outside of the friendship. So really important to also be reaching out to people that you don't talk to all the time. One thing we encourage people to do in the book is just grab coffee with someone who's not on your team. Um, At happy hours, don't just stick to the same three people all the time. You might actually meet someone else who's amazing. And at the very least, you'll make someone else feel more belonging at work um, and not so outside of a certain silo.
1: That's a really good point. Whether we're in middle school or in the workplace, it feels like the same emotional experience.
0: Yeah, it's funny, too, when we were researching how many um, pieces of advice came from teachers that teach middle schoolers, and then it's actually like, you know, one of them is just, you know, like, learn to pronounce people's names correctly. That came from someone who works with Teach for America teachers. And her point was that if you don't know how to pronounce someone's name, you probably won't ever say it, and then you're at risk of making them feel really excluded because you're never addressing them by name. And this was someone who dealt with middle schoolers, and yet this exact same thing applies in the workplace. Um, we interviewed an executive who said that, and he's, he thinks about this all the time, he's very focused on inclusion and belonging, um, and yet he said that two weeks after he had formed a new team, this woman came up to him and she said, you address everyone by their first name, but you've never called me by mine, and I think it's because you don't know how to pronounce it, and my name is Karishma. And he realized that that was exactly what had happened. Um, and so there are these really small things that maybe seem obvious at first, but they happen too infrequently. And so I'm just going to continue beating the drum of these small things make all the difference in the workplace.
1: So, And those small things you referred to as micro actions, right?
0: Yes, exactly. So these are, again, the small gestures that have a really big impact on how we and the people around us feel in the workplace.
1: And give me an example of a few others, things that we can do that send the message, I see you, I care about you, I'm trying to make this a nice place for you.
0: Yeah, so one that I really love – as I said, I'm an introvert, and so when I'm at a networking event, my way of socializing is I will kind of awkwardly sidle up to a group and stand there and hope that someone <laughs> talks to me at some point. Um, and so what what someone did for me, and this is a micro action, is once when I did that, they said, "Hey," they stopped the conversation and said, "Hey, who are you?" Here's what we're talking about, here's who everyone is, and then the conversation continued, but now I had all the information to join in. And so that's a really wonderful gesture, again, of we care to include you, Um, we feel like we want you to belong. Something that managers can do that's really great is just share ups and downs. So I think too often we operate, especially early in our career, under this assumption that everyone either has no feelings at work <laughs> <Right>. or everyone's <laughs> having a good day, and that if you have a bad day, it means that you hate your job or you're going to get fired, and that's not true. Like You can love your job, and you're still going to have days when you don't want to show up, when you're tired, when it's raining, when your best friend isn't in the office, and you still have to go to work. Um, and so I think for, for managers or people who have been at an organization longer and are successful to normalize that, that you shouldn't feel bad about feeling bad, that can go a long way in make so- making someone feel better.
1: So I, I love that you're talking about it from the perspective of whoever's in the leadership role in the office and that it, these are not chinks in your armor. These are actually things that make you human and more approachable and therefore stronger as a leader.
0: Yeah, exactly, and that you can also feel these things and be really successful and still belong. Um, So I think, yeah, just as much as possible. And again, in the book, we do caution there shouldn't be. There's a real big difference between sharing and oversharing in the workplace, but to the extent that you can, normalizing especially in the beginning, like it's normal to feel anxious. Um, It's normal to feel some level of imposter syndrome. And (laughs) it's okay. You do belong.
1: Talk to me about sharing and oversharing and what things fall into those categories and where those boundaries are, because I think people have a really hard time with them.
0: Yeah, so this is I mean, it's important for everyone, but definitely for leadership. Um, Lots of research shows that if we display too much emotion or kind of divulge too much information, we can undermine our ability to be a leader that people respect. And so the way we talk about this in the book is we say practice selective vulnerability, and that is speak to your emotions, but always provide a path forward. And so a quick example is if you're at a company and there have recently been a a round of layoffs, you come in the next day, and you are just like, hello, everyone. Happy to be here. What a great day. Let's get working. No one's going to trust you because that's such a
1: strange response. Right, like you're in your own planet, and you don't yeah. understand how scared and angry they are. Exactly.
0: Or you're just a sociopath. It's just not a good <laughs>
1: thing <Right. signal.
0: laughs> Um, But you also, as a leader, you can't come in the next day and start weeping on the floor and say, you know, I'm so worried about the future because everyone's going to start looking for other jobs immediately. (laughs) Um, And so the way to strike the right balance is to come in and speak to your emotions without getting emotional. So say, hey, this is a rough time. It's hard on me, too. Um, I just want to acknowledge that and then provide a path forward. And you do that by saying, Here's what I'm doing on my end to make sure this never happens again, and here's what I need from you. But I really believe in our ability to get to a better place and that in a year from now we'll be in a completely different situation. So you're acknowledging emotion, but then you're also still making people believe in you as a leader.
1: It's funny. You know who I've seen do this exceptionally well are parents, because I think it's Um. something that we have to develop in dealing with our kids. Like if something sad happens in the family, you lose a family member. You know, you say, I'm sad too. We're going to be sad together, and we're going to get through this. and that I think it's, and tell me if I'm wrong, it's that similar idea of how do I be real with you, honor your feelings, but also recognize that you're going to take the cue from me as the leader as to are we, are we safe?
0: Yeah, exa- yeah, that's such a good example. I think it's really about being empathetic without destabilizing the environment.
1: Critically important. So there's another environment that I want to talk about. Um, you know, we pay a lot of attention to the pipeline. How do we get um, women into, say, STEM fields? And what happens in the classroom? We talk about the end of career and the boardroom. But it's in the conference room where most of us spend most of our time mid-career, collaborating and working with others in these tight spaces, in tight amounts of time, where we have work that has to get done as a group. What are some things that we should be aware of in those dynamics that can help us navigate them well, and operate as a team healthfully?
0: Yeah. So one is to be aware of your – so an inevitability of teamwork is conflict. <laughs> um, the moment that you have people collaborating, there are going to be clashes, and it's really important to figure out some of those clashes are very productive and increase innovation. So if everyone brings a ton of ideas to a project, you're probably going to have a better output than if only one person is bringing ideas. Um, So it's really important when you're having a creative clash to make sure it doesn't turn personal and, again, that you're not bulldozing over other people's feelings. So in the book, we say really reflect on yourself and think about are you a seeker or an avoider? Um, Mm. And this is not always true, but it tends (laughs) to be that men tend to be seekers and women are more likely to be avoiders. And so a seeker is someone who just loves sort of ritualistic opposition. So you throw out an idea. I'm I'm sure that we all... You mean they argue for sport. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, how could you say that? Did you think about this? You're wrong. Just like very kind of aggressive and assertive. And an avoider is someone who will just avoid conflict at all costs. Um, And so in the face of a seeker, an avoider is much more likely to shut down because they perceive it as an attack as opposed to just a way of brainstorming. And so I think, again, figuring out what you are, learning what other people are, and then as a team coming up with how do we want to talk through conflict? How do we want to raise ideas? How do we want to handle criticism of those ideas to make sure that you don't have one person or one group of people kind of dominating the conversation? Um, One interesting thing, and then we can jump to another topic. This is one of my favorites, is this came out of LinkedIn, And they implemented this thing called a meeting monitor, and this is like your organizational jury duty. So the meeting monitor is someone ideally who's not always on your team, and they come to a half-hour meeting, and their only job is to write down the dynamics that they notice. So who is talking, who is not talking, who's on a BuzzFeed listicle (laughs) on their phone the entire time. And then they can share that with the manager or they can tell people in real time whatever feels good. And it's really about doing a check. I think as a team, it's so easy to fall into dynamics and never really notice what's going on. Um, And then one thing the meeting manager should also or the meeting monitor should also ask is who should have been in the room that wasn't in the room? Mm. And that's really about advocating for the people who aren't there to advocate for themselves.
1: Which is actually an extension of that kind of empathy and also making sure that um, you have those kind of complex voices in the room in an engaging way.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's such a key to innovation and progress is to bring all these, you know, interesting different perspectives together.
1: So with the last kind of three minutes that we have left, I want to ask you about emotional proofreading because I think so many people ignite conflict via email. So tell us, what is emotional proofreading, and how can we go about doing it?
0: Yeah, so emotional proofreading is exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) You read through your email, and you really think about how would it feel to receive this email. I have on really important communication. I've even actually sent the email to myself to go through the physical process of seeing it in my inbox, opening it, reading it. And this actually came out of an interaction I had with Molly where she sent me a draft of a chapter and I was in efficiency mode and just bullet pointed out all these changes I wanted to make and then sent it back to her immediately. And she called me and said, hey, this feels really bad because (laughs) it's just like a list of all the things that were wrong. And You never said, like, thank you for writing this or what you appreciated. And that was a huge mistake on my part because I did. Like, I was only giving her all this critical feedback because it was a good draft and it was, like, worth really diving into the line-by-line edits. But I think so often we just assume the other person will know what we're trying to say. And when it comes to digital communication and especially writing, just be explicit. if you if you think it's a good draft write that it's a good draft very important and so that's emotional proofreading is put yourself in the other person's shoes What information might they be missing? What have you not said that you intended
1: to say? Also, if I read this right, part of what you were also advising, and I'm hoping I'm right because I do this all the time, is that in the same way that you would come into a meeting and say, how are you? How was your weekend? Connect with each other a little bit and then get off to work, realizing that an email is coming in cold to say, hey, how are you doing? Those aren't just feminine niceties. Those are actually ways of helping somebody hear your tone and prepare to listen.
0: Yeah, completely. Um, And to the point, you know, to the extent that you can, just adding a personal touch to show that you remember a previous conversation, you care about what's going on in their personal life. uh, I think that's so crucial. I'm really glad you brought that up.
1: So I want to know, how can we help our listeners find you, find the book, find the various illustrations that you've made? Because there's so much here to dive into. I feel like we just scratched the surface.
0: Yeah, so the book is No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work, and that is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, at your local bookstore. And then I would point people to our website, Liz and Molly, and Molly is spelled M-O-L-L-I-E. And we have a bunch of assessments. So you can take, are you an over a motor, under a motor? Do you feel belonging at your organization? And there will also be links there to our Instagram where we post new illustrations and um, a bunch of other resources that might be useful for people.
1: Liz, thank you so much for joining the program and for making this book with Molly. It really is great, and we've loved having you.
0: Thanks so much for having me. This was a great conversation, and I actually learned a lot, too.
1: <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. And thank you all for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio132. Once again, a special thank you to my guest, Liz Fossline I'd also thank, like to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, Michelle Abramov, my sound engineer, Jeffrey Simmons. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit
0: businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.